This is episode 154 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled The White Plague by Frank Herbert. This episode is part of our Sunday literary series. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show, and thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. Today we're going to be talking about The White Plague by Frank Herbert. It was published in 1982 and was nominated for a Locust Award for Best Science Fiction Novel uh, in 1983, but it lost to Isaac Asimov's novel Foundation's Edge, which is truly a remarkable book. Uh, But we'll take a look here at The White Plague and uh, see what you think. It is amazing how many plagues get a color name. So in this case, it's not the red plague, it's not the black plague, uh, but it's the white plague. And we mentioned last week uh, that we have some books that involve gendercide, so they only kill off one sex or the other. And in this case, Frank Herbert is killing off all the women. Uh, Last week, in The Female Man, Joanna Ross killed off all the men, allegedly to create a utopia. In this case, uh, Frank Herbert is killing off all the women, but it's really to punish the men. So he intends to create a dystopia, which is kinder, actually. It's set in 1996, which I presume helps him cover some uh, science problems with the existing technology at the time. And we'll get to take a look a little bit about uh, his view of bioterrorism at the time. I want to talk first about some notes from the publisher, Macmillan, which are always kind of fun to read because sometimes they they actually describe a book that they wish they had published instead of the one that uh, actually turned out. And I think that might be the case in this particular example. All right, so they say, from science fiction grandmaster Frank Herbert, creator of the Dune universe, comes this novel of bioterrorism and gendercide. What if women were an endangered species? It begins in Ireland, but soon spreads throughout the entire world, a virulent new disease expressly designed to target only women. As fully half of the human race dies off at a frightening pace and life on Earth faces extinction, panicked people and governments struggle to cope with the global crisis. Infected areas are quarantined or burned to the ground. The few surviving women are locked away in hidden reserves, while frantic doctors and scientists race to find a cure. Anarchy and violence consume the planet. The plague is the work of a solitary individual who calls himself the madman. As government security forces feverishly hunt for the renegade scientist, he wanders incognito through a world which will never be the same. Society, religion, and morality are all irrevocably transformed by the White Plague. The book tells the story about 
uh, molecular biologist John Rowe O'Neill, who was witness to an IRA bomb that blows up his wife and children. On my birthday, no thank you very much at all, uh, he then, as revenge, he creates a plague to kill off all the women so that men will know the pain of loss. He releases this terrible plague in Ireland because that's where his family was killed, and he's punishing the country for supporting those terrorists. He also releases it in England because of their malevolent participation in this act by oppressing the Irish and giving them a cause to participate in terrorism, and in Libya, whom he blames for training the terrorists. He demands that all countries send their, the citizens of those countries back uh, to their respective places where they should then be quarantined and let the plague run its course. And he says if he if they don't, uh, he'll release more plague. Weirdly, he releases the plague and then goes to Ireland undercover as a molecular biologist to sabotage whatever work is done to find a cure. And he arrives there and is suspected of being the uh, person responsible for the plague. And through a turn of events, he's forced to walk to an Irish lab where this research is underway, along with a priest, a boy whose mother was killed and who has taken a vow of silence out of uh, sorrow, and the bomber who actually detonated the explosive. You know, when you write fiction, you can just make these things happen. Meanwhile, governments are using panic fire to sterilize areas of the plague. North Africa is wiped out. Boston is burned to the ground. Rome is destroyed with atomic weapons. And the world's armed forces have been organized under a Canadian. Uh, the scientists have also banded together because they expect now that there's going to be a bunch of repression against research work. And angry mobs are lynching Irish and English and Libyan citizens. And surviving women get raped or traded around like cattle. So fun times. And as if that isn't enough, at the end of the book... It hints that polyandry, a form of polygamy, where a woman takes several husbands, will become mandatory, but also somehow that women will have a lot of power to pick and choose their mates. And several reviewers have pointed out that if there really are 5,000 men to one woman, it's probably not going to go like that. As one reviewer put it, shudders. The reviews are mixed at best, uh, Frank Herbert is the author of Dune, which is one of the most beloved science fiction books of all time, but it is also extremely long. So is The White Plague, and people are not as patient. That walk through Ireland really seems to have gotten people's goat. It's an opportunity for Herbert to express his views about politics and sociology and religion, um, but as one reviewer, Rachel, put it, a lot of walking, a lot of talking, a lot of discovering abandoned huts and near-empty farms and bitter old men waiting to die because their beloved Katie, Shanine, Dervla passed and there's no hope left. It's boring as hell. And people complained that the dialogue was so stilted as to be laughable. Another said, oh, the draggery. One astute reviewer said she had expected something else based on the summary that she'd read. Another said you should avoid it like the plague, 
Another said it was torture. Another said it drug on forever and ended leaving this reader unfulfilled and more than a little angry. That was actually from a guy who said he'd read a bunch of Frank Herbert and loved his other work. And then with that dystopian ending or ambiguous ending, uh, some people compared it to The Handmaid's Tale. Many readers commented that it really suffered from a lack of editing and could have been a 50-page book without all the, quote, techno-biochemical babble. A lot of people said the science was really flawed and that a good high school science student could spot the errors. There's a description that O'Neill, the bioterrorist, splices genes into viruses and contaminates bacteria that targets women and speeds up their aging. So to be a little bit more generous here, uh, reviewer Amy Rogers from sciencethrillers.com maybe provides some insight into this. She says, note the publication date, 1982. The single most remarkable thing about this book is the prescience Herbert shows in regard to biotechnology. At that time, genetic engineering was in its infancy. Only the simplest gene splicing experiments had been performed and few members of the general public had a clue about the growing power of the biological sciences. Frank Herbert's imagination leaped forward a generation, postulating the creation of a disease specifically designed by a bioterrorist before the word existed, with a molecular preference for a targeted subset of humans, females. Herbert impressed me by tossing around a variety of relevant technical terms, though ultimately the scientific details are vague and don't hold up to scrutiny. Kind of an interesting commentary there. One reviewer pointed out that the Cincinnati Enquirer called the White Plague a tale of awesome revenge instead of an awesome tale of revenge. He sums it up, The White Plague is a lousy novel start to finish, Not simply a dated novel, a lousy one, and wildly overstuffed at 501 pages. It could just as well have been a short story for all the incessant roving of its protagonists over the Irish landscape and all their ceaseless provokings of each other, always towards similarly injurious ends. Adding insult to injury is Herbert's uber-stilted dialogue, insufferably cliched Gaelic lilt, utterly cardboard characters, and poorly developed storyline. Some people complained that Herbert clearly hates the British, and others felt that he must feel the same way toward women, the way they were presented in the book. One commented, I give up. I can't understand who the author hated the most when writing this, the Irish, the men, or the women. Neither am I sure that he ever talked to a real live woman. And just to delve into the critique of the sexism potentially on display here, a lot of women hated this book. Charlotte from Goodreads wrote, Both the bad guy and the author treat women as props whose deaths only matter in the effect that they have on men. In this universe, the bad guy's motivation for creating the plague was, I'm going to kill all the women so the whole world can experience the pain I had. Like what? Do you somehow not realize that women are human beings in their own right and don't just exist to make men happy? I'd say that that was just the character being sexist, except that the narrative presents this idea as though it makes perfect sense. Finally, one reviewer said, it reads like it's never been read, full of idiotic 
verbosity. It strikes me as pretty weird that one person's masterpiece can be another person's dog. Uh, Just a couple of things about Frank Herbert. He was born in 1920 and died in 1986. He was born in Washington State, but ran off to Salem, Oregon, my father's stomping grounds, and ended up working at the newspaper there. He attended the University of Washington for a time where he met his second wife, and they were both writers and sold short stories until Herbert was able to devote himself to writing full-time when his wife took a position as an advertising writer for department stores and became the breadwinner during the 60s. Dune, his masterpiece, was way long and rejected by 20 book publishers before it was eventually published in eight installments from 1963 to 1965. It is now the best-selling science fiction novel of all time and was the first major ecological science fiction novel raising planetary awareness. The whole Dune saga is considered an epic example of literary world-building, And Dune, in particular, the novel, has won widespread acclaim, winning the Nebula Award in 1965 and sharing the Hugo Award in 1966. I personally tried to read it and failed. So there you go. Uh, None of his many later books achieved that level of success. And we might get, get some insight into that from Malcolm Edwards, who wrote in the Encyclopedia of Science Fiction, Much of Herbert's work makes difficult reading. His ideas were genuinely developed concepts, not merely decorative notions, but they were sometimes embodied in excessively complicated plots and articulated in prose, which did not always match the level of thinking. His best novels, however, were the work of a speculative intellect with few rivals in modern science fiction. I want to read you the beginning of the White Plague, though I will warn you that there is one sentence where children die, which is quite horrible. Uh, But I think you'll enjoy the writing and the narrative setup of the plot. I have to interject another trigger warning in here. I do attempt an Irish accent in a couple of places in this excerpt with, you might say, mixed success. It kind of uh, wanders in and out. So be prepared for that. May the hearthstone of hell be his bed rest forever. Old Irish curse. It was an ordinary gray British Ford, the Spartan economy model with right-hand drive customary in Ireland. John Rowe O'Neill would remember the driver's brown-sweatered right arm resting on the car's windowsill in the cloud-filtered light of that Dublin afternoon. A nightmare capsule of memory, it excluded everything else in the scene. Just the car and that arm. Several other surviving witnesses commented on a crumpled brake in the Ford's left front wing. The brake had begun to rust. Speaking from her hospital bed, one witness said, The brake was a jagged thing, and I was afraid someone would be cut if they brushed against it. Two of those who recalled seeing the car come out of Lower Leeson Street knew the driver casually, but only from his days in postal uniform. He was Francis Blay, a retired postman, working part-time as a watchman at a building site in Dunleary. Blay left for work early every Wednesday, giving himself time to run a few errands and then pick up his wife, Tessie, 
On that one day each week, Tessie spent the morning doing light secretarial for a bedding shop in King Street. It was Tessie's habit to spend the rest of the day with her widowed sister, who lived in a remodeled gatehouse off the Dunleary Bypass, just a few minutes out of his way. This was a Wednesday, May 20. Blay was on his way to pick up Tessie. The Ford's left front door, although appearing undamaged by the accident that had crumpled the wing, still required a twist of wire around the doorpost to keep it closed. The door rattled every time the car hit a bump. I heard it rattling when it turned onto St. Stephen's Green South, one witness said. It's God's own mercy I wasn't at the Crafton Corner when it happened. Blay turned right off St. Stephen's Green South, which put him on St. Stephen's Green West, hugging the left lane as he headed for Grafton Street. There were better routes for him to make his connection with Tessie, but this was his way. He liked to see all the people, Tessie said. God rest him. That's what he said he missed most when he quit the postal. All the people. Blay, slight and wrinkled, had that skin-scratched cadaverous look that is common among certain aged Celts from the south of Ireland. He wore a soiled brown hat, almost the exact shade of his patched sweater, and he drove with the patient detachment of someone who came this way often. And if the truth were known, he rather liked being slowed by the heavy traffic. It had been cold and wet through most of spring, and while it was still cloudy, the cloud cover had thinned, and there was a feeling that there might be a break in the weather. Only a few of the pedestrians carried umbrellas. The trees of St. Stephen's Green on Blaze Wright were in full leaf. As the Ford inched along in the congested traffic, the man watching for it from a fourth-floor window of the Irish Film Society building nodded once in satisfaction. Right on time. Blaze Ford had been selected because of this Wednesday punctuality. There was also the fact that Blaze did not garage his car where he and Tessie lived in Davitt Road. The Ford was parked outside beside a thick yew hedge, which could be approached from the street along a path shielded by a parked van. There had been a van parked in this covering position the previous night. Neighbors had seen it, but no one had thought to comment at the time. There were often vehicles parked in that place, one said. How were we to know? The watcher at the Film Society building had many names, but he had been born Joseph Leo Herity. He was a small, solidly fleshing man with a long, thin face and pale, almost translucent skin. Herity wore his blonde hair combed straight back and hanging almost to the collar. His light brown eyes were deeply set, and he had a pugged nose with prominent nostrils from which hair protruded. From his fourth-floor vantage, Herity commanded the overview of the entire setting for the drama he was about to ignite. Directly across from him, the tall trees of the green formed a verdant wall, enclosing the flow of vehicles and pedestrians. The Robert Emmett statue stood opposite his window, and to the left of it there was a black-on-white sign to the public toilets. Blaze Ford had stopped with the traffic just to the left of Herity's window. A white tour bus with white and red stripes down its side loomed over the small Ford. Traffic fumes were thick, even at the fourth-floor level. Herity checked Blaze's license plate to be certain. Yes, JIA 5028. Then there was the crumpled left front wing. 
The traffic began to inch forward, then stopped once more. Harity glanced left at the Grafton Street corner. He could see the signs of the Toy World shop and the Irish Permanent Society on the ground floor of the red brick building, soon to be taken over by the Ulster Bank. There had been some protest about it, one ragged march with a few signs, but it had died out quickly. The Ulster Bank had powerful friends in the government. Barney and his lot, Harity thought, they think we're ignorant of their scheme to make a peace with the Ulster boys. Again, Blaze Ford inched toward the corner, but once more was stopped. There was heavy foot traffic where Grafton took off from St. Stephen's Green. A bald-headed man in a dark blue suit had stopped almost directly beneath Harrity's window and was examining the cinema marquee. Two young men pushing bicycles threaded their way past the bald-headed man. The traffic remained stopped. Harrity looked down at the top of Blaze's car. So innocent-looking, that car. Harrity had been one of the two-man team to emerge from the U-shrouded van near Blaze's parking spot the previous night. In Harrity's hand had been a molded plastic package which they had attached like a deformed limpet under Blaze's car. At the core of that package lay a tiny radio receiver. The transmitter sat on the windowsill in front of Harrity, a small black metal rectangle. It had a thin wire antenna and two recessed toggle switches, one painted yellow, the other red. Yellow armed it, red transmitted. A glance at his wristwatch told Harrity that they were already five minutes past zero time. Not Blaze's fault. It was the blasted traffic. You can set your bloody watch by Blay, the leader of their selection team had said. The old bastard should be running a tram. What are his politics? Greaves had asked. Who cares about his politics? Harrity had counted. He's perfect, and he'll be dying for a grand cause. The street'll be full of people, Greaves had said. There'll be tourists sure as hell is full of Brits. We warned them to stop the Ulster boys, Harrity had said. Greaves could be an old woman sometimes. They know what to expect when they don't listen to us. It was settled then, and now Blaise's car was inching once more toward the Grafton Street corner, toward the mass of pedestrians, including the possible tourists. John Rowe O'Neill his wife Mary and their five-year-old twins, Kevin and Ma Raid, could have been classified as tourists, although John expected to be six months in Ireland while completing the research called for under his grant from the Pastor Morin Foundation of New Haven, Connecticut, an overview of Irish genetic research. He thought the title pompous, but it was only a cover. The real research was into the acceptance of the new genetics by a Roman Catholic society whether such a society had taken a position to cope with the explosive potentials in molecular biology. The project was much on his mind that Wednesday morning, but necessary preparations required his attention. High on his list was the need to transfer funds from America to the Allied Irish Bank. Mary wanted to go shopping for sweaters to keep our darlings warm of an evening. There you go, John teased as they left the Sherburne Hotel, stepping into the rush of tourists and businessmen. Only four days in Ireland, and already you sound like a local. And why not, she demanded, and both my grandmothers from Limerick. They laughed, drawing a few curious stares. The children tugged at Mary, anxious to be off shopping. 
Ireland suited Mary, John thought. She had pale, clear skin and dark blue eyes. Jet black hair, Spanish hair, her family called it, framed her rather round face, a sweet face. Irish skin and Irish features. He bent and kissed her before leaving. It brought a blush to her face, but she was pleased at his show of affection, and she gave him a warm smile as they parted. John walked away briskly, humming to himself, amused when he recognized the tune, Oh, what a beautiful morning. John's Wednesday appointment for transfer of foreign funds was at 2 p.m. at the Allied Irish Bank, Crafton and Chatham Streets. There was a sign just inside the bank's entrance, white letters on black, non-branch customers upstairs. A uniformed guard led him up the stairs to the office of the bank manager, Charles Mulrain, a small nervous man with tow-colored hair and pale blue eyes behind gold-framed glasses. Mulrain had a habit of touching the corners of his mouth with a forefinger, first left side, then right, followed by a quick downward brush of his dark tie. He made a joke about having his office on the first floor, what you Americans call the second floor. It's confusing until you catch on. John agreed. Well, a quick touching of lips and tie. You understand that we normally do this at our main office, but when I called, they assured me it was as a convenience to the customer, Mulrain said. He lifted a folder from his desk, glanced inside it, nodded. Yes, this amount. If you'll make yourself comfortable here, I'll just get the proper forms and be right back. Mulrain left, giving John a tight smile at the door. John went to the window and pulled back a heavy lace curtain to look down on Grafton Street. The sidewalks were thick with people all the way up to the arched gateway into St. Stephen's Green, two short blocks up Grafton. The motor traffic was too abreast, filling the street and crawling along toward him. There was a workman cleaning the parapet on the roof of the shopping center diagonally across the street, a white-coated figure with a long-handled brush. He stood outlined against a row of five chimney pots. Glancing at the closed door of the manager's office, John wondered how long Mulrain would be. Everything was so damned formal here. John looked at his watch. Mary would arrive with the children in a few minutes. They planned to have tea. Then John would walk down Grafton to Trinity College and begin work at the college library, the real start of his research project. Much later, John would look back on those few minutes at the bank manager's first-floor window and think how another sequence of events had been set in motion without his knowledge, an inescapable thing, like a movie film where one frame followed another without ever the chance to deviate. It all centered around Francis Blay's old car and a small VHF transmitter in the hands of a determined man watching from an open window that looked down on that corner where Grafton met St. Stephen's Green. Blay, patient as always, eased along at the traffic's pace. Harity and his window vantage point toggled the arming switch of his transmitter, making sure the antenna wire dangled out over the sill. As he neared the Grafton corner, the crush of pedestrians forced Blay to stop, and he missed the turn of the traffic light. He heard the tour bus gain clear of traffic off to his right, trundling off in a rumble of its heavy diesel. Barricades were being erected on the building to his left, and a big white-on-red sign had been raised over the rough construction. 
This building to be remodeled by G. Tottenham Sons Limited. Blay looked to his right and noticed the tall blue and white prestige cafeteria sign, feeling a small pang of hunger. The pedestrian isthmus beside him was jammed with people waiting to cross over to St. Stephen's Green and others struggling to make a way through the cars stopped on Grafton and blocking Blay's path. The crush of pedestrians was particularly heavy around Blay's car, people passing both front and back. A woman in a brown tweed coat, a white parcel clutched under her right elbow, and each hand grasping a hand of a small child, hesitated at the right front corner of Blay's car while she sought an opening through the press of people. John Rowe O'Neill, standing at the bank manager's window, recognized Mary. He saw her first because of her familiar tweed coat and the way she carried her head, that sleek cap of jet hair. He smiled. The twins were screened from him by the hurrying adults, but he knew from Mary's stance that she held the children's hands. A brief break in the throng allowed John a glimpse of the top of Kevin's head and the old Ford with the driver's brown sweatered elbow protruding. Where is that damn bank manager? John wondered. She'll be here any minute. He dropped the heavy lace curtain and looked once more at his wristwatch. Harity, at the open window above and behind Blay, nodded once more to himself. He stepped back away from the window and toggled the second switch on his transmitter. Blay's car exploded, ripped apart from the bottom. The bomb, exploding almost under Blay's feet, drove him upward with a large piece of the car's roof, his body crushed, dismembered, and scattered. The large section of roof sailed upward in a slow arc to come crashing onto the Irish Permanent Society building, demolishing chimney pots and slates. It was not a large bomb, as such things went, but it had been expertly placed. The old car was transformed into jagged bits of metal and glass, an orange ball of fire peppered with deadly shrapnel. A section of the car's bonnet decapitated Mary O'Neill. The twins became part of a bloody puddle, blown against the iron fencing against the street at St. Stephen's Green. Their bodies were more easily identified later because they were the only children of that age in the throng. Harity did not pause to glance out at his work. The sound told it all. He tucked the transmitter into a small and worn military green pack, stuffed an old yellow sweater onto it, strapped the cover and slung the pack over his shoulder. He left the building by the back way, elated and satisfied. Barney and his group would get this message. John O'Neill had looked up from his wristwatch just in time to see the orange blast envelop Mary. He was saved from the window's shattered glass by the heavy curtains, which deflected all but one of the shards away from him. One small section of glass creased his scalp. The shockwave staggered him, driving him backward against a desk. He fell sideways, momentarily unconscious, but getting quickly to his knees as the bank manager rushed into the room, shouting, "'Good God, what was that?' John stumbled to his feet, rejecting the question and the answer that rumbled through his head like an aftershock of the blast." He brushed past the bank manager and out the door. His mind remained in shock, but his body found its way down the stairs. 
He shouldered a woman aside at the foot of the stairs and lurched out onto the street, where he allowed himself to be carried along by the crowd rushing toward the area of the blast. There was a smell of burnt iron in the air and the sound of cries and screams. Within only a few seconds, John was part of a crush being held back by police and uninjured civilians pressed into service to keep the area around the explosion clear. John elbowed and clawed his way forward. My wife, he shouted. I saw her. She was there. My wife and our children. A policeman pinned his arms and swung him around, blocking John's view of the tangled fabric and bloody flesh strewn across the street. The groans of the injured, the cries for help, and the shouts of horror drove John into insensate rage. Mary needs me. He struggled against the policeman. Mary, she was right in front of... The ambulances are coming, sir. There is help at hand. You must be still. You cannot go through now. The man off to John's left said, Let me through. I'm a nurse. This more than anything stopped John's struggles against the policeman. People were helping. There was a nurse. It'll be cleared up in a bit, sir, the policeman said. His voice was maddeningly calm. That's a bad cut on your head. I'll just help you across to where the ambulances are coming. John allowed himself to be led through a lane in the crowd, seeing the curious stares, hearing the voices on his right ooing and the calling upon God to look over there, the odd voices telling John about things he did not want to see. He knew, though. And there were glimpses past the policeman who helped him to a cleared place against a building across from the green. There now, sir, the policeman said, you'll be taken care of here. And then to someone else, I think he was hit by a flying bit. The bleeding seems to have stopped. John stood with his back against a scarred brick wall from which the dust of the explosion still sifted. There was broken glass underfoot. Through an opening in the crowd to his right, he could see part of the bloody mess at the corner, the people moving and bending over broken flesh. He thought he recognized Mary's coat behind a kneeling priest, Somewhere within him there existed an understanding of that scene. His mind remained frozen, though, frigidly locked into limited thought. If he allowed himself to think freely, then events would flow. Time would continue, a time without Mary and the children. It was as though a tiny jewel of awareness held itself intact within him, understanding, knowing, but nothing else could be allowed to move. A hand touched his arm. It was electric. A scream erupted from him, agonized, echoing down the street, bringing people whirling around to stare at him. A photographer's flash temporarily blinded him, shutting off the scream, but he could still hear it within his head. It was more than a primal scream. This came from deeper, from some place he had not suspected and against which he had no protection. Two white-coated ambulance attendants grabbed him. He felt his coat pulled down, shirt ripped. There came the prick of a needle in his arm. They hustled him into an ambulance as an enveloping drowsiness overwhelmed his mind, sweeping away his memory. For a long time afterward, memory would not reproduce those shocked minutes. He could recall the small car, the brown-sweatered elbow on the windowsill, but nothing afterward. He knew he had seen what he had seen, the explosion, 
the death. Intellectual awareness argued the facts. I was standing at that window. I must have seen the blast. But the particulars lay behind a screen that he could not penetrate. It lay frozen within him, demanding action, lest the frozen thing thaw and obliterate him. That's it. That's the end of our excerpt uh, from The White Plague by Frank Herbert. Thanks for listening, everybody. Well, the pandemic isn't really over, but it seems as though we've moved into a different phase where our lives have a bit more normalcy. As a result, we're adjusting the format of the show back to fewer, more lengthy episodes airing on Tuesday and Friday and sometimes on Sunday, since those Sunday literary episodes have been very popular. Speaking of which, our downloads have exploded during the pandemic, so thank you for your patronage. If you like what we do, you can support the show through our Patreon page. Another way to support us, which doesn't cost anything, is to follow us or like us on Podomatic.com, and that will help us increase our visibility. Also, we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a comment about who you are, what you like, or if you have a comment about the show. And finally, I also run a professional training company for people who want to advance in their careers with courses on communication skills, executive presence, and accent reduction. You can find out more at discreteguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-G-U-I-D-E. Please take care and let's talk again soon.